When I discovered her in the journals of George Augustus Robinson and discovered the journals of George Augustus Robinson and my own family in it, it turned my life around. It was what made me a writer. My first book, Community of Thieves, is exactly about that. And the realisation that I stand on her shoulders, the realisation that her life and the life of her clan and the rest of the Indigenous people of Tasmania were extinguished in order to make way for mine. That's Tasmanian author Cassandra Pybus talking about Truganini, a remarkable Indigenous woman who survived colonial brutality and change on the island. More from her in a moment. Hello and welcome to Life Sentences, a series of probing conversations about biography and the biographer's craft. I'm Caroline Baum, and I'm stuck writing a biography. So, as a procrasty project, I decided I would interview other biographers in the hope of picking up some tips along the way. In this series, you're going to hear from seasoned players and some newcomers who have gone the distance. It was a difficult choice as to who to pick to kick off this series, but then a book came out that leapt to the top of my list. But first up, I should acknowledge that I'm on Darawal country, on the south coast of New South Wales, the traditional home of the Wadi Wadi people, and that I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. It's very unusual for anyone to attempt a biography as a form of atonement, but that is what Cassandra Pybus has done with Truganini, Journey Through the Apocalypse, her often very harrowing biography of one of Tasmania's most famous Aboriginal figures. Cassandra is a Tasmanian historian and the author of 12 books that include essays, travel and biography. She's held various research professorships at universities in Australia and the US, but her style of writing is never dry in the way that some academic writing can be, and she's often drawn to subjects that are polarising and controversial. Truganini, Journey Through the Apocalypse, is no exception. I spoke to Cassandra via Zoom at home in the wonderfully named Lower Snug and began by asking her to tell us who Truganini was. Truganini was born about 1812, we guess, um, about a decade after settlers arrived in Hobart, and she died in 1876 in Hobart. But most of her life was spent in the Dontracasto Channel at the Aboriginal settlement at Oyster Cove and, and being on Bruny Island, which is where she was born. Her life actually bookends the destruction of the Aboriginal people of Tasmania. And that's one of the reasons why I chose to focus on her because not that because she was the last, because she wasn't, not that because she was the most important, because she wasn't, but because she is the one whose life bookends this apocalyptic moment in which the original people of Tasmania were destroyed by the colonial state. Her father was the um, senior man of the Nuinoni people of Bruni Island and when she was about 15 or 16 years old, the clan had been pretty badly impacted by the penal settlement that had been established up the Derwent River where you'd have runaway convicts would come over to, to Bruny Island, but you'd also have convicts who were working to get resources on Bruny Island. And there were sealers as well coming by to capture 
women and take them away as their slaves. And that happened to both her mother and her, well, her mother was killed in that exchange, but two of her sisters were also stolen. So by the time she was an adolescent, she uh, was very aware of uh, white men. <laughs> and when we first encounter her in the historical record, which is in the diaries of George Augustus Robinson, she's actually living with convict woodcutters um, just across the channel as their kind of um, sexual companion, uh, I suppose. Um, and George Augustus Robinson encounters her, thinks she's very bright and she speaks a bit of English and she's the big man's daughter. So he takes her back to Bruny Island um, and attempts to turn her into a, cha- a, a more chaste <laughs> and Christian woman, complete failure, a complete failure for the rest of her life, that little exercise. But so she enters the historical record as a, as a young woman of about 17. Um, and in the next six months or so, the, all of the remaining people in her clan, with the exception of a man named Waradi, who's a lot older than she, who she's been kind of made to marry, um, and his two children and her are the sole survivors of a devastating um, e- epidemic of influenza. And she's t- she, Waradi, and the two boys are taken off Bruny Island and spend the next 13 years of their life traveling around uh, Tasmania with George Augustus Robinson and some other um, Aboriginal people from who are the remnants of odd clans, survivors of other clans, to find the rest of the Indigenous people of Tasmania to round them up and take them off to an offshore island in the Bass Strait. Now, for that, she's often been seen as some kind of collaborator or um, trader, but, you know, she's a woman who um, is doing her best to negotiate the apocalypse. Basically, everything has fallen apart around her and she is making the best of a terrible situation. I think one of the things that's most interesting about your book, Cassandra, is the impulse for writing it. I, I just can't think of another biographer who has been motivated to write by what I think you would call atonement. And I'm wondering whether you could give us the context for the the motivation for writing this book. That's it. When I f- discovered her in the journals of George Augustus Robinson and discovered the journals of George Augustus Robinson and my own family in it, it turned my life around. It was what made me a writer. My first book, Community of Thieves, is exactly about that. And the realisation that I stand on her shoulders, the realisation that um, her life and the life of her clan and the rest of the Indigenous people of Tasmania were extinguished in order to make way for mine. I mean, that's an extraordinary kind of realisation to come to and to then wrestle with for another 30-odd years or so after I wrote that first book about, well, how do you um, acknowledge that and come to, you know, what what do you do about that kind of realisation other than, you know, say you feel bad about it? Um, I mean, I consider my life in Tasmania to be um, an act of grace. I think that I live in the best place in the world, and at the moment I most certainly do. And the part that I live in, which is new and only country, is paradise. And so um, 
there's a sense that I have to acknowledge that this has been taken away from other people in a, in a remarkably short period of time who had inhabited this space for at least 25,000 years and possibly longer. And my family sort of came swanned in from England and were given like a third of Bruni Island as their kind of estate, um, even when she was still living there, even when the remnant of the original owners were still there. And my family talk about her in a, in a document that was recorded in the early 19th century, talk about how she used to walk over their land and that they would give her tea and sugar and, you know, be nice to her, um, walk over their land. You know, she used to come onto our farm. It was her land, but they never saw it that way. Now I see it that way. But um, what does that what does that mean? You know what? So th- this is what I'm wrestling with. It's a very uh, heartfelt, deeply personal book, um, in which it seemed to me that the most important thing that I could do was give her back her life. Um, instead of she's been remembered up until my book came out, basically for her death, supposedly the last of the Tasmanians. I wanted to. Um, to recover this remarkable woman, this remarkable survivor who had negotiated a cultural shift, to put it mildly, the apocalypse, that something so dramatic and so dreadful and so complete that it is unmatched in modern history. You are not the first person to write about Truganini. She has been the subject of other biographers in other times. And I'm just wondering what you think are the key myths and mistakes that previous biographers have made about her. Well, basically, there's been only the one other biographer, and that's Vivian Ray Ellis. Um, and she was writing at the beginning of the 1970s. And she did remarkably good research but she had a particular point of view which I find offensive and the Aboriginal people of Tasmania find it offensive, and that is that she was just a dupe. She was just, she attached herself to George Augustus Robinson, had sex with him and became his kind of creature um, because he was a mesmerist and had made her a woman without her own volition, which is just appalling kind of way to figure somebody in a in a historical narrative and you know it's it's a very common colonial trope you know the indigenous mistress um i've seen absolutely no evidence for that and the evidence that she elicits for it is mistaken she's made a mistake about something that robinson has written in code in his diary which actually referred to a european woman with whom he was having an affair and not to tragedy at all um but also that she isn't that she's like somehow betraying her people, that she's just his kind of handmaiden, all of which is not borne out by um, the descriptions of her in his journals, and that she's not seen as somebody who is engaged in this very complex process of negotiating her way through an unthinkable situation. She's very clever. She's very funny. She's uh, very sexual and very um, sure of herself. And she's she weaves this very interesting um, path through her life whereby she makes certain compromises. Uh, she has to. 
um, and she negotiates her relationships with European people, which doesn't become one of them. And more importantly, she doesn't become one of their servants or slaves. I mean, for an Indigenous woman at this time, not to have been reduced to being somebody's unpaid servant is remarkable. But in fact, she makes them her servants. I mean, she makes them do things for her. And she never gives up on the things that she believes in. She never gives up on her culture. She spends right up until her last days, she's still engaged in her cultural practices. There's an image of her in the house that she's living in in the days before she dies in Hobart. It's a quite nice Victorian house and she's in the upstairs bedroom with a big fire and she sleeps on the floor surrounded by her two or three dogs in front of the fire. She doesn't sleep in the bed. The dogs might sleep on the bed, but she sleeps on the floor and she's always done that. Um, and so you might see photographs of her dressed up in a, in a kind of Victorian dress, but that's not her. And one thing you will always see is that she's always wearing her shell necklaces, um, which is have a significance that I don't fully understand, but they're obviously very important to her. Well, she was known for her basket weaving and for these exquisite necklaces of those lustrous marinere shells. So she made a little bit of money sometimes, didn't she, from selling those to the folk of Hobart? Yes. At one stage, George Augustus Robinson thought he might have discovered a little kind of cottage industry there, but she basically is another case in point. She's not anybody's creature. She doesn't, she's not going to make these things to sell them so he can point to what a wonderfully good, um, missionary he is she does it if she wants to get some money she she understands that money is a useful thing she can buy alcohol with it and and maybe they can buy ochre with it um so yeah if she can make necklaces and sell them she will but she won't she's not going to do it on demand she doesn't do anything on demand she is entirely her own woman now in the 19th century this is Always admirable. <laughs> Indeed. I want to ask you about the source material, Cassandra, because we can't read what she thought or said, and everything that you tell us is secondhand, and most of that secondhand testimony is from George Robinson and his journals, his diaries, his letters. Now, he is an enormously complex and ambiguous figure. Can you give us a sort of précis of who George Robinson was uh, more widely in Tasmania and and who he was specifically to Traganini? Well, he was a tradesman, which puts him pretty well down on the lower rungs of the colonial ladder, a little bit above the convicts. He was quite successful house builder in Hobart. He had a large family to support. He'd obviously come to the colonies from London to um, better himself. And so it was an extraordinary thing for him to give up a successful business in Hobart to go to Bruny Island to give out rations to the blacks. Um, and he, he did it because he was an evangelical Christian and he believed that he could save them, that he could protect them from the violence of settlers and that he could bring them to God and that that, that would, you know, that in itself would be a way to save them. And in this, his patron, George Arthur, the governor, who was also an evangelical Christian, were of a one mind, you know, basically that they could probably rescue some of the indigenous people and turn them into, um, I don't know, Christian servants, I suppose, Christian serfs, Christian underclass of some kind. 
now, this was very quickly put to bed by epidemic disease, which wiped out all of the people on Bruny Island. And so then he hit upon the idea that he would persuade the governor that he could go over to the West Coast where people were not um, diminished, where they were still living in healthy reproducing communities and persuade them that they should put themselves under the governor's um, protection. And so he needed somebody to help him in that exercise. So he took Tuggenini and were ready and, and her, some kind of kin to her from one of the West Coast tribes, a woman called Dre, um, were his guides in that exercise. One of the most remarkable things about him is that he walks across the southwest wilderness, which is still just remarkably wild country, uh, where no man, white man has ever been before, and he just loves it. He has the time of his life. And when he's out there in the bush with these Aboriginal people and he's got a number of other um, individual Aboriginal men who were in jail in Hobart that the governor said he should take with him, um, he just becomes like, you know, you, you can see him going native. You know, he he hunts with them. He sleeps with them at their camp at night. He participates in their corroborees. And, you know, suddenly... He isn't the God-bothering missionary anymore. He's just like one of them. And so I don't think he ever quite understood the difficulty of the mixed messages he was giving them so that he spends much more time out in the wilderness. We go, they go around Tasmania for 12 years, you know, on and off, mostly on. And so he's hardly ever at home. He's usually always out in the bush. And so they, would be within their rights to form the opinion, and I believe they probably did, that he was becoming one of them, whereas his posturing was that he was making them into good Christians like himself. (laughs) He's got to be one of the most complicated characters I've ever come across, really, because he's a good man and he does genuinely care about these people. And when he's out in the bush with them, he's, he's really very engaged with them and why we know so much about them is because he writes so much down in his diaries he's he's genuinely interested in them he genuinely regards them as intelligent um sensitive uh emotionally complex human beings i reckon that's very few people at that time regarded indigenous people in that way um and and he and in his way he really loves them I think he actually likes them better than he likes his own family, which is, again, a curious thing. But at the same time, he's a colonial settler who has come to the colony to better himself, to climb up the ladder. I mean, he's got a land grant, a small land grant, because he's looking after these Aborigines, uh, which he would never have been able to get as a tradesman. And by the end of it, of course, he's got umpteen land grants um, because he keeps being rewarded for finding these Aborigines and then, you know, turning them over to the government. And so you have this situation where his best instincts are constantly being fueled by his worst instincts. And he's so contradictory. And I think he gives the people who are with him, his sable companions, as he calls Tragedini and her friends, very mixed messages about what he cares about and what their fate with him is going to be. And I, I'm i not sure that he's deliberately lying to them or be, deliberately betraying them. I think he, in his heart of hearts, he really thinks that maybe they, 
he can swing it so that they can stay in a part of Tasmania with him and they can just live their traditional life as he promises them they can. Um, and he'll be able to, you know, make sure that the nasty white men stay away from them. Well, of course, that doesn't happen. And he, and, and so he ends up betraying the people who he has made these promises to, uh, in, in a fundamental way. And when they're on Flinders Island, it's a disaster, an absolute disaster. And then he, has already begun to see himself as a, as a, as a major kind of figure in the imperial world, as somebody who could be an expert on the unique, extinct race of Tasmanians. It's quite clear to him that they're about to become extinct and that that sort of takes over in terms of his, uh, understanding about, um, what his role is. He's not going to be able to save these people. He tries desperately to save the ones who are closest to him, who he takes to Victoria with him when he goes to Victoria. But, um, yeah, he's got a lot of very bad press, George Robinson, but actually both Lyndall Ryan and I think that he's he had a lot of very good instincts and he was much better. Than, and when it comes to settlers at that time, he's the best you're going to get. And we wouldn't know anything about the Indigenous people of Tasmania if it wasn't for him. You're listening to Life Sentences, a podcast about contemporary biography. Back to Traganini. She may not have been George Augustus Robinson's mistress, but she slept with a lot of other men, black and white. She had no children due to infertility caused by syphilis, but that made her no less desirable, especially as she was a prodigious diver and hunter. Cassandra is quite clear about her sexual appetite. She's interested in um, Aboriginal men. She's interested in, uh, she's certainly receptive to the approaches of, of white men. And the person she doesn't seem to be interested in is her husband. Her husband, Worady. <laughs> Much to his dismay uh he spends an awful lot of time trying to fend off other men or not so much white men then because you know he's already learnt the the trade with white men is is a sexual trade um i mean his first wife was also somebody who who went off to the sealers and the whalers um on bruni island uh but any other aboriginal man who comes within kui of truganini he gets very wary of um and rightly so rightly so because she's very interested in these younger men around her uh, but i think that there's a prurience in um the way in which we look at the sexuality of indigenous women um uh, I've seen it in the way people talk about Native American women in, in North America and also the women, the Polynesian women, um, and a kind of prurience and um, moralistic kind of view that the only way that you could be engaged in sexual relationships with um, people who were not of your um, race uh, or of your culture was to be raped um, or, or forced in some way, which I find um, curious point of view. Once again, you know, it basically denying the volition to women who could clearly see that in a world which would be turned upside down, where that kind of 
notion about sexuality, the Christian notions about what was appropriate sexual behavior for women didn't apply, never had applied, that this was something that they, that they could trade, um, and did. Um, but it's interesting that you do make the point that she was brutalized very early on in her life. She witnessed many acts of brutality. And you say at one point that she would have suffered from what today we would call Stockholm syndrome. Well, I've begun, I've been picked up on that and I've, and I have been giving it a bit more thought. I might not make that glib kind of assertion any longer. What I would remind people is that a lower class, poor, white woman in London (laughs) would have been just as brutalized, would have suffered just the same kind of, you know, appalling sexual violence, been prostituted out at the age of 10, 11, 12. I mean, People in Tasmania, in the Tasmanian Aboriginal community are not happy that I have uh, said that the Aboriginal women had syphilis. But I draw their attention to the, the study of um, the medical records of early Tasmania and the, every, so many people had syphilis. I mean, so many of the white women, the convict women had syphilis. So many of those convict women would have suffered the same kind of brutal treatment that Truganini suffered. I mean, it's not something, you know, unique to um, an Indigenous woman that she would have been living with those um, whalers who seem to have treated her quite well, actually, and the people said to have been um, brutal to her who were the woodcutters. Um, they probably were brutal to each other too and to um, they were brutalised men who engaged in brutal practices and I think that um, not all of the men that she had those relationships with would necessarily have been brutal. Um, I mean, Alexander Mackay, she clearly had a relationship on and off with. And to the end of her day, she would go down and visit Alexander Mackay and play with his children. When we were talking earlier about George Robinson, we were talking about how complex and ambiguous he is. And is he- as if he weren't complex and ambiguous enough before, the thing that really kind of drives that home is the stance that he takes, I guess, in relation to what is known as the black line. And I'm just wondering whether you can explain what the black line was, because we really need to understand that to understand that Robinson had a separate idea, which you've touched on with this rather sort of naive hope that he can rescue and save well, the black line was one of those, a piece of colonial insanity, um, in which it was decided that in order to get rid of the, um, remaining Aboriginal people who were a bit of a thorn in the side to people who wanted to have their land and run their sheep on them, um, that they would, uh, marshal every able-bodied man and boy in Tasmania, both in the south and the north, and with the soldiers as well, and they would march across the island toward one another and they would round up all the Aboriginal people and push them onto the Desmond Peninsula where they would be taken off in boats to somewhere else. It didn't work. It was a ridiculous idea because as one person, including George Augustus Robinson, pointed out, the island was more rugged than Scotland and Wales. The idea that... You could do something like this with dealing with a, a population of people who had lived 
in this environment for thousands of years. They didn't know they'd lived there for thousands of years, but they knew they'd been there for a long time and they, that they knew their way about, that this wouldn't work and it didn't work. But it had the effect of making it clear to the Aboriginal leaders that their days were numbered, that the, the, the colonial authorities were determined to get rid of them so that they were open to Robinson's alternative suggestions you come with me and I will protect you. If you come with me, I will do a deal with the governor on your behalf so that a part of the island can be put aside for you and I will be there or a man like me will be there to protect you. Now, he knew when he made those promises that the governor would never agree to it, but he made the promises anyway. And uh, I think perhaps he hoped, just like he hoped when he took all... 15 Aboriginal people to Victoria, that he could persuade the governor, who said he couldn't do it, um, that this was the right thing to do. Well, he couldn't persuade the governor that this was the right thing to do. So he was ended up with his close associates as well as the remaining people of Tasmania on, on this offshore island where they just perished. Mm. I think one of the things that sort of adds to the myth of Truganini, I guess, is the fact that we can see her. So there are wonderful um, images of her. She was painted and she was later in life photographed. And one of the striking things in your book in terms of the illustrations is to see that she always had this close shorn head, whereas the images of the men show them with these sort of ringlets, which are like today's dreadlocks, I guess. And you say that she used to cut her hair with, I think, a piece of glass. Why did she look the way she did? Why was that? Was that a look that was different from the way other women of the time would look? All women did that. Yeah, and they loved the discovery of glass because it made cutting their hair, shaving their hair so tightly. And it was because they swam all the time. They were in water all the time. The men didn't go into the water. Um, the men were the hunters. And uh, the men, their hair, their ochred ringlets were in, in, of enormous significance. Do you think it's right to think that in some sense Truganini did become something of a celebrity? You know, she was seen walking around the town. Uh, people knew who she was. Um, was was there a sense that she had some sort of aura of celebrity in her own lifetime? In the last year or so, she did. She didn't walk around the town too much. By the way, this is just there's enormous numbers of stories come out about Truganini after she's died. But basically, she wasn't capable of walking around the town. She was very, um, in the last couple of years of her life, she was very um, housebound. And um, I think that a lot of those stories about seeing her walking around the streets of Hobart are just that, stories. What people don't understand about Tragini is that she spent the bulk of her life living in her own country, visiting her own country on a regular basis. Nobody else did. And, and that she had a very good way of interacting with European people so that she got what she wanted from them. You know, she'd sing them some songs and she'd tell them some stories and they would give her some wine and some, you know, sweet things. And um, basically um, if she had to let them take her photographs or paint their, her picture, she would, but they had to give her something. It was always transactional. You know, there's a lovely description of her sitting for um, the sculptor 
who did the bust and basically she would sing songs and, and, and sit, you know, while he, but in return, they had to give her glasses of Madeira and cake. I was wondering, when you were writing the book, Cassandra, were there any particular protocols that you had to be aware of or sensitivities when you were talking to people about undertaking the project? Did you have particular apprehensions? Did you have particular misgivings? Um, I took the view that I had already good relationships with the Tasmanian Aboriginal community. I had helped them in a very important, a couple of very important legal cases about identity. I had written my first book, um, which was very well received by them, and that I could go ahead and write this book, understanding the, the sensitivities of it, but that I was not going to... Um, collaborate or ask permission to do it because I that's not how I operate it's not how I work um and I and and it's and it's a fraught business um none of the people in my book with the exception of the of Manalagena have descendants in Tasmania and certainly Trugani has no descendants and I was very careful about um things that I knew to be offensive um, and that things that I knew to be um, untrue and, and, and hurtful and, to, and to, to undermine those kinds of narratives. But at the same time, I, you need to understand that Trugany didn't have very good standing in the Aboriginal community of Tasmania and I really wanted to resuscitate her. And I, and I did seek a the support of some key members of the community. Gay Sculthorpe, who has written on the back of the book, is, of course, a member of one of the dominant Aboriginal families in Tasmania, and she encouraged me to do it, and so did her sister Heather, who is the uh, director of the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre. But beyond that, I um, basically went with my own kind of understanding about um, my right to tell this story because in, in a way it's my story too. Given that so much of the telling is about crossing country, pretty unforgiving country, um, and describing the beauty of the landscape and the abundance of what there was to eat, and knowing that you have been a walker, I'm just wondering, did you walk a lot of the terrain yourself? Yes. I did. Um, I, I walked a lot of the terrain and as much as possible I drove. To, and, in fact, I've just got back from the southwest. Um, but I went, this is my second trip. The, the first trip was while I was writing the book. And I walked some of the south coast track, not much of it. Much, not much of it. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, but I went to all of those places in the northeast and, of course, to Flinders Island. And as much as possible I've been everywhere that I could see that she'd been and seen it with my own eyes. And luckily, because it's in Tasmania, it's hardly changed a bit to what she saw. Like I saw exactly where she would have swum across the Arthur River with George Augustus Robinson. I mean, there's nothing there, of course, but trees and water. But, you know, there's. I was with somebody who's done a lot of research about that area, and he said that I think that's where it was. And so, um, you know, we went there on a boat, and um, 
that was amazing. And so, yeah, that sense that I often I didn't get it until I'd seen it with my own eyes. Um, how much as a biographer do you give yourself permission to speculate about what may or may not have happened or what her motivation may or may not have been? Well, in this case, not very much because I was constrained by um, the fact that I don't see myself as a biographer as much as a historian. And as a historian, I, you know, I don't engage too much in speculation about what could have been. Um, but what the major, the most constraining factor is, um, an understanding that, um, it is not my place to speculate about the feelings and emotions of an Indigenous woman when I have no evidence, um, reliable evidence about what she might be feeling or what she might be thinking. The obvious thing to do with a story like this is to write it, write it as fiction. Well, I'm not a fiction writer um, and I would not even attempt it because it is not my place to write a book about the inner life of Chaganini. I would love to see somebody do it. I, in fact, I would like to see a film made of it and I have been talking to a couple of, uh, well, one, Rachel Perkins, <laughs> about about it because I think that a film by an Indigenous filmmaker with a screenplay by an Indigenous writer would be the way to go. But um, because I think one of the most important things in the um, Uluru Statement, with which I conclude my book, is the importance of truth-telling. And as a historian, I'm very well aware of how little truth has been told about the uh, beginnings of uh, European Australia and how deeply um, limiting that is for us as a nation. Cassandra Pibus may not think of her book as biography, but I think it very much is. Like the best biographies, it expands our understanding not only of an individual, but of a time and place, in this case, colonial Australia at its most brutal. Tasmania is still having trouble reconciling itself to this past, and Cassandra has made an important contribution to that process of acknowledging what took place there, even if that makes some people uncomfortable. Whether you see Truganini as a victim of oppression or as a woman who made her own decisions and lived on her terms, her story will haunt you, as will the story of what happened after her death, which adds insult to injury and provides the painful coda to Cassandra's book. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. The series is produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Jennifer Macy. Music by Blue Dot Sessions.